Hello, and welcome to the next installment of our TTM Academy podcast. My name is Dr. Benjamin Abella. I'm the medical director of the Penn TTM Academy, an educational initiative focused on cardiac arrest and post-arrest care. This is podcast number 23, and tonight we have a very special installment of this podcast. I'm thrilled to invite Kristen Flannery, also known in the Twitter sphere as Lady Glaucomanflecken, the wife of the famous Twitter star Glaucomanflecken. As many of you may know, uh, Lady Glaucomanflecken, or Kristen as we'll call her, as she calls herself, she was the provider of bystander CPR for her husband's cardiac arrest. Now, the good news is he's made a full recovery, he's back to work, and Kristen was kind enough to present with her husband at the annual Resuscitation Science Symposium, and they were the keynote speakers, and they spoke about their experience, and given how well-received that was, and given how articulate a spokesperson Kristen has become for cardiac arrest and post-arrest care, we thought it would be all the better to bring her on the podcast to tell us a little bit more about her experiences and what she went through. So with that, Kristen, welcome to the TTM Academy podcast. Thank you. With that introduction, I'm a little intimidated by myself, so now I have a lot to live up to. <laughs> uh, not at all. We are we're thrilled to have you, and uh, really, really honored that you're part of our part of our journey and part of our discussion here. So, um, I think we can just start by by setting the context because certainly some of our listeners know your story either from Twitter or from the resuscitation meeting, but many do not. So perhaps um, you can tell me a little bit about yourself and your husband and, and what happened um, on that fateful day. Maybe you can give us the day and date and, and, and just walk us through the story. Yeah. Um, so it was May 11th of 2020. It was the day after Mother's Day. We'd had a really nice Mother's Day weekend just as a family hanging out. Um, it was early in the COVID pandemic. So, you know, just kind of had hung out at home together. But it was a normal day. Everything was great. Um, at 4.45 in the morning, um, early morning of the 11th, which was a Monday, he was making these very um, loud, almost like snoring sounds. Um, and it woke me up. And because I was so groggy, that is what I thought he was doing. So I just kind of pushed his head over to see if, you know, that would stop it. Um, he didn't respond to that the way that he usually does. Um, so I kind of tapped him on the shoulder and said his name, you know, was, at this point, I was just trying to wake him up and tell him to stop snoring so I could get some sleep, you know. Uh, but then he didn't respond to me doing that either. And, you know, by that point, and I was a little bit concerned because that was unusual behavior for him. So then I started really trying to wake him up and, you know, pushing him on his shoulder and saying his name really loud. And he just kept making those sounds um, in a way that sounded kind of, you know, not normal and a little frantic. And it just really um, was alarming. So I didn't know um, if he could hear me, but just in case, because I had no idea what was going on. I am not a, a medical professional in any capacity, um, but I didn't know if he could hear me. So I told him that um, I was calling 911 just in case he could hear me so he would know and be reassured, but um, don't think he did <laughs> in retrospect. But, um, you know, I put my head on his chest, tried to uh, I thought it was a respiratory issue because again, it was COVID. It was early on in, in the pandemic and um, they were respiratory type sounds. And so I thought he was just having trouble breathing. So I put my head on his chest to try to, to feel for any breath. Um, and I 
couldn't feel any um, or hear any. And I also didn't hear a heartbeat. And I noticed that um, when I when I did that as well. So um, we got all connected with the dispatcher and um, she gave me instructions to start CPR. So um, I had had some CPR training, just one class, like, I don't know, 15 years ago or something in college. Yeah, a quick question for you, Kristen. Maybe our listeners don't know. Tell us what you do and, and what your background is. Yeah. You're, not, you're not medical, right? You uh, Not at all. Yeah, <laughs> no. so, so tell me a bit about that because it, it's just always impressive um, when people just jump in and start talking about dispatch CPR. So, so what do you do and what's your background educationally? Yeah, so um, I've had kind of a windy path, um, lots of different careers so far. Um, started out um, training in social psychology and moved into um, social and cognitive neuroscience um, for my graduate work. And then I pivoted from there and went into um, gifted education, actually. I work at a, a gifted education center um, at a university. Uh, so it's focused on K-12 students, but it's based at a university. Um, and I run some of our programs for gifted kids, and I also oversee our communications and marketing efforts there. So that was a little bit of, you know, I'm a medical spouse, so you have to kind of get creative. Been with him since undergrad, so I've had to move a lot for, for my own, you know, training and then a lot for his as well. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of where I've ended up. And it, it worked out great in the end, but no, yeah, not medical anything at all other than just to be along for the ride of. So if I can ask, was this the very first time you'd ever provided CPR on anybody? Yeah. Yep. Anybody that's not a mannequin. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so now, now I think with that context, we can return to the story a little bit. So, so you had learned CPR at some point, I guess. You had you taken a class? yeah? I taken one class. Yeah, I got certified. Well, I guess it's more than one class, but you know, I got certified once um, in college for the for a part time job I had for watching kids after school. Um, it had been years and years, but thankfully it's not, you know, terribly complicated um, in terms of just the mechanics of it. Um, so still remembered what to do, but I didn't know when to do it. Like I did not know that this was a time when it was needed. Um, again, I was just thinking, you know, COVID and respiration and his heart was nowhere on my radar. Even having noticed that he didn't have a heartbeat, just in that moment with all of the shock and confusion and everything, it, it didn't really sink in that his heart wasn't beating um, or that I should do CPR. So it was really the dispatcher who recognized that that's what the situation was and that that's what I needed to do. So I really give her all the credit for knowing um, you know, that that was the case. If, if she hadn't been there, if she hadn't been trained in CPR instructions like that, um, he wouldn't be here because I did not know to do that. So wow. Now you know, a time we all know gets very strange during cardiac arrest events. Many of us in the mm -hmm. business talk about this a lot. Do you have any sense of how long it took from when you first said hello to the dispatcher to when the dispatcher realized, you know, wow, we we got to do CPR? Do you have any sense of that? Um, I think um, it was about three minutes from when I woke up to when I was doing chest compressions, two or three months, yeah. I looked back after the fact, because I'm a data nerd, um, I looked back for, uh, you know, the timestamp on my phone. Um, and, you know, so I saw when I called and then, you know, I kind of estimated from there how long it was. Before she took so yeah, it wasn't long. 
And, and what kind of questions did she ask you? Uh, uh, we're just often curious because we know there are sort of standard scripts that are sometimes used, but it can vary a little bit. What, what, were the, what was that first minute of communication like with the dispatcher? She asked, um, well, I, she answered and I said, my husband won't wake up. Um, and so she said, okay, so he's unconscious. And I said, yeah, he won't wake up. And um, she asked if he's breathing. And I said, no. Well, I, I think what I said is he's making these, you know, odd noises and he's kind of breathing, but then he stops and then he starts again, because I, again, had never heard of agonal breathing or, you know, I didn't know anything about what happens in a cardiac arrest. So um, I was just trying to explain that to her. And um, she said, and how old is he? And I said, 34. Um, and she said, okay, I'm going to give you CPR instructions. And then you were off to the races. Yep. Yeah. So I was a little confused, um, you know, in the, in the call, you can hear in my voice, I'm kind of like, uh, okay. <laughs> and then I get over to, you know, where he was and, and get situated and start doing compressions and everything. Um, oh, and she asked if I could, she told me to get him on the floor or on a hard surface. And I said, well, I don't think I can move him because he's um, foot over a foot taller than me and probably a good hundred pounds heavier and then we have a nightstand right next to the bed. And so I was worried that, you know, without him able to help me at all, that I would just kind of drag him off and hit his head on the nightstand on the way down. So I said, I don't think I can move him. Can I do it on the bed? And she said, yeah, but if that's what you have to do, we're just going to do, we're going to go from there. And then she, you know, told me to put my hands on the center of his chest and push down and she helped me count. And I had that BJ song stuck in my head. I remembered that from way back when in my CPR training. And um, so I was kind of using that to keep the beat as well. But she counted with me the whole time. Um, she kept asking me questions, you know, had he taken anything, just stuff like that. What's his medical history? Um, so, you know, we were kind of having those conversations. So Kristen, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, we often talk about in the CPR world just how exhausting it is mm -hmm. to bystander CPR. Did you feel like you were losing steam or could you tell or what was it like in the moment? Um, I had a lot of adrenaline, which thank goodness for adrenaline. Um, there's no way that I could do any of that, you know, for that long in normal circumstances. Um, but in the moment you just kind of, you know, you have all that energy to begin with. Um, I did, so I did CPR for 10 minutes and by the end of it, I was getting very tired and I was starting to get concerned that I wouldn't be able to be effective anymore if they didn't get there soon. <laughs> so yeah, towards the end, it was a real struggle. I'm sorry. When, when did the medics show up? Um, they were there within about probably, probably like 11 or 12 minutes after I woke up. So, you know, after I called about 10 minutes. Right. So, so you had to do CPR for 10 minutes, which is incredibly long. You know, we often talk about in the CPR world that people start to get fatigued after two or three minutes. So 10, wow. I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. And like five months before I'd had a, a cervical disc replacement. And so I was pretty concerned that I wasn't going to be able to do this well enough, but um, I was just giving it everything I had. Uh, I paid for it later over the, the course of the next week. I was very sore everywhere, but, uh, but it's worth it. Wow. <laughs> Well, so, so then EMS arrives and, and they sort of do their thing um, and, and they got him to the hospital. Um, no, did you ride in the ambulance with him or did you follow along separately? No, um, I wasn't able to be with him because of COVID protocols. Wow. So 
um, so they took him downstairs once they got here and they worked on him down there and they gave him five shocks and three rounds of epinephrine and a dose of amiodarone and then finally got his heartbeat back. Um, so he'd been in ventricular fibrillation and um, so they, they got him back um, and then they put him in the ambulance and sent him off. But I um, had to stay behind for a little bit because I had some logistics to take care of. I called his clinic and canceled his patients and <laughs> called in sick to work and called the parents and all that stuff. Oh my goodness. Um, and then once all that was squared away and I had, you know, my parents drove up from their house to, to be with the kids while I went to the hospital. And, and remind us how old your kids are. Uh... At the time they were eight and five. Yeah, they were in the next room and I was just so worried while I was doing CPR that they were going to wake up and come in because of all the noise and stuff. And thankfully they didn't. Um, and one of the first responders, I told the dispatcher that they were there and I didn't want to scare them. And so one of the uh, first responders shut their door as they came upstairs. But he said when he did that, he made eye contact with my older daughter. So they were awake in there. They had heard the noise and woken up and then they saw the lights of the ambulance and all that out the window. Um, but thank goodness they stayed in their bed. Um, but yeah, she did. The older one, the eight-year-old, made eye contact with them. And he said that was a really haunting moment. Um, I can for, only imagine. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing we often don't talk about in this business of resuscitation science and, and implementation is sort of the impact of family being around, impact on the providers. You know, um, we often talk about the fact that EMS crews often don't get to interact with the family afterwards. Mm -hmm. They often don't get to hear what happened. And, um, you know, it, it's, we sort of pretend like we're all hardened to these things, but, um, you know, that's pretty impactful when you've got some children terrified, wide-eyed, watching their father get encoded. I can only imagine. Right, yeah, we were able to um, track them down afterward and, and set up a meeting and all of that. So we got to close the loop, which was really nice, I think, for everybody involved. Um, and I got to tell that person that my daughter's just fine. You didn't scar her for life or anything. Like she's totally okay. So that was really nice. And you could tell that was a, a relief for him to hear. Um, and I got to meet the dispatcher as well and, and thank her for what she had done. She was the only one with me that night. You know, she was, it was just me, <laughs> me with her on the other end of the phone. So. Wow. Yeah. So, so yeah, well, actually I was going to ask about the hospital, but let's talk about the dispatcher for a moment, because I, I think that's another really important piece of this. So, so how did you finally meet her? Did the, the, the agency sort of hook you up or how did that come to pass? Um, I just wanted to meet them. I wanted to hear the 911 call. Um, I know, you know, a lot of people cope with stuff like that by just forgetting about it. Don't try not to think about it. I'm kind of the opposite. I need to turn it over in my mind a bunch and figure out what the heck happened. And, you know, having lived it, I, I knew the events, but I really wanted that perspective of, you know, after he came through it and was okay, I wanted to listen to it again and kind of just try to figure it out, basically, because I was in shock while it was happening. Um, and so I listened to that. And then that's what made me really want to, um, to reach out and connect with her. And um, my mother-in-law did the dirty work of just, you know, internet investigating who were these people. Um, she contacted the, the department and they, you know, kind of put us in all the right directions. But, um, but yeah, that would be, it would be nice if, you know, that's kind of part of a system. I don't know if it'd be on the EMS side or in the hospital or what have you, but to, to just offer to the people, you know, hey, if you'd like to reach out to the team that responded to you, here's how you could do that. 
because uh, it was a bit tricky and time consuming to try to figure all that out. But but we really wanted to do it. It was important. So we wanted well, to do well, it. Yeah. And, and good for her and good for you that you made the effort. I completely agree. I, every time in, in my you know 15 years of doing cardiac rest work, um, every time I've been lucky enough to, to connect the survivor with EMS crews and once in a while with a dispatcher, only very rarely. Um, it, it's a remarkable experience for everybody. Yeah. Um, very yeah. special. And yeah, and, and you know, there are very few places that do it in any sort of organized systematic fashion. And it right. tends to be a lot of work like the experience you had. It's not easy. Systems aren't in place. A lot right. of our rules about confidentiality make people very skeptical about helping set up these sort of reunions. I mean, everyone recognizes that it's with the best of intentions, but it's just, there's no structure to support it. Does that yeah. add with your experience? Yeah, and I think all you have to do is offer it to the family if you're worried about confidentiality. You know, just a lot of people probably don't even realize it's a possibility. Um, and then for others, it is so much work that they just kind of forget about it. But um, but yeah, all you have to do is give them what they need. You don't, they don't have to do it. You're just giving them information, you know. So um, I don't know. I'm not part of the hospital systems, obviously. But uh, to me, it seems like a fairly simple thing to add in if we wanted to. So well, no, and, and it's great to hear your inspiration on that. And, and, and I'm going to bring that back to some of our resuscitation colleagues. I think it's an important topic that we need to keep working on, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And same for, you know, mental health care and stuff for the families or the bystanders or whatever. Um, just, I understand there's confidentiality issues and you can't force people to seek treatment or anything, but just offer it, you know, put somebody there to offer to help in the moment or, or to give them the resources for, for where to find it instead of putting the onus on the the people who were traumatized to go figure out how to treat themselves. Absolutely. Now, I, I think these are all these are all very good points. And for listeners to our, our podcast, um, many of you may know, and others who do not know, um, there was an important American Heart Association scientific statement put out last year on survivorship, um, led by a number of resuscitation champions, uh, Kelly Sawyer, uh, Michael Kurz, and others. It's an important statement. I will put it in our show notes, um, and it speaks to some of these issues. And we hope it's a springboard for ongoing work in various communities to improve these things. Um, now, now, Kristen, to change topics a little bit, um, a lot of the listeners are very interested in post-duress care um, mm -hmm. and what happens after resuscitation. So now let's fast forward a little bit to the hospital. Uh, so Will is being cared for in the hospital. Presumably mm -hmm. he's in a critical care environment. Tell us a little bit about your experiences there and what happened mm -hmm. and what they did for him and so forth. Okay. Um, so I was allowed in as an end-of-life case. Um, so I got to be in for a bit, but I didn't get to, to be with him. So I didn't see what happened, but I was told that, you know, first, obviously he went to the ED. Um, they did, I might get some order wrong here. So I apologize if I do, but, you know, they did CT scans, angiograms, um, just any kind of, you know, test that they could do at that point, everything came back clear. Uh, so then they sent him up to the ICU um, and from there, they cooled him for 24 hours to just try to reduce the damage to his brain, if there was any. Um, and he was in that state for, you know, 24 hours. And then they, they started warming him up and he came back pretty quickly. Um, he was awake by, this was a Monday. He went in, you know, by the time he was at the hospital, it was around 7 a.m. or so, 6 or 7 a.m., um, by 10 that night, he was starting to wake up and move 
purposefully. So I'm sure he was probably just clawing at things, um, but he wasn't responding to commands or anything yet. So they just gave him more sedation and kept him there. And then um, in the morning, he was waking up and moving occasionally. I mean, they really had to struggle to keep him, you know, sedated for long enough. Um, and then at 10 a.m., they started rewarming him on Tuesday. And, um, you know, he just was fully awake. I think by that afternoon. Um, that's a fairly that's a fairly quick wake up time. It's yeah. and 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 for listeners to remind you, um, uh, Kristen did CPR for ten minutes. So so it is very likely, um, Kristen, that your husband may have had an arrest downtime. We call it of 12, 14 mm -hmm. minutes mm -hmm. to be down for fifteen minutes and wake up fully that quickly, at least to me, suggests that you did darn good CPR. <laughs> okay. Kept the blood flowing. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to hire you in my emergency department as the CPR <laughs> provider. Okay. Because that's, uh, it's just remarkable. Now, did they coach you there? Did they tell you what to expect and when he might wake up or that he might end up having brain injury? I mean, what, what kind of messaging did they give you? If you remember? Um, I don't remember the specifics of, you know, what they told me and when, but I know that I, they told me that, um, that he, you know, we didn't know if he was going to wake up. That was the first question. And then once he did wake up, we still didn't know if he going to follow commands and, um, the intensivist explained to me why that's important. Um, and then he did follow commands and everybody's very excited. And then um, we still didn't know, you know, she let me know, now we need to see if he is, you know, neurologically still there. Um, so I think it wasn't until, you know, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, that we really knew he's in there, he's still there. I mean, he was obviously very confused and out of it, but, but he was there. And I could even see, I finally got to FaceTime with him. Um, and that first time I got to FaceTime with him, I could see in his eyes even that he was still there. You know, there was just a little bit of, of him in there. I mean, he was very groggy and confused and sad and scared. Um, but, but you know, I don't know how to explain it, but it was just his his little, you know, life spark. So, so that was good. And then he just kind of continued to improve over the next day or two. And he was home by Thursday. That is amazing. Yeah. I'm curious, and I'm sure some of our listeners are curious too. Was there any consideration of taking him to the cardiac cath lab or um, did they say why or why not? I am not sure. It was really difficult, especially during COVID. Um, I got maybe one phone call a day. So my, you know, from the doctor, um, once he woke up, I was able to, to connect with him whenever he felt like calling, but um, but I only got about one medical update a day. And um, I, again, am not a medical person and those updates go pretty quick. And so I was just doing my best to just type out everything that she was saying uh, so that I could report out to family members. Sure. Um, but I know, you know, they had looked at, they wanted to do um, an MRI, but because of COVID, those were scheduled way out. Uh, so we had to wait a few weeks for that. And then once that came back clear, then he was able to get um, a subcutaneous ICD. So um, they did, you know, they looked at, I think it was something like 60 tests or something while he was in there and just absolutely everything came back normal. So we have no idea uh, for sure what caused it. 
So, so, so to this day, we don't know if he has a genetic uh, channel problem or, or what the cause of his arrest was. We had some genetic testing, um, but we don't know what it means. It's a variant of unknown significance. So we're meeting with a genetic counselor and, you know, going back through the family tree and trying to figure all of that out right now. But, um, but if it is what caused it, it's not something that is known plants right now apparently so wow. well I, i'm sure that's not the best uh, feeling on the other hand if he's gotten mm -hmm. an icd in place as it now i'm curious has has there been any problems with the icd has it gone off subsequently hopefully not no he hasn't had any other events and um you know he, he sends the data off to his doctor with a little device on our nightstand and um everything looks fine but you know it's it's just funny you just it's a it's not a discrete event i think for the family you know and for the patient um that's a a daily reminder there's a little machine with a heart on it that flashes at us right next to our bed you know and then he's got the icd just in his body and you know there's just all these little reminders of it so never really fully goes away i still you know if he makes even the slightest different kind of sound while he's sleeping you know i'm up there right away just like checking on him are you still okay <laughs> so, so you're, you're very conscious yeah and that's an important area um, um of exploration because you know we're just beginning to sort of realize that survivorship has a whole host of issues mm -hmm. and and for what it is to be a spouse of someone at this event it's just not the same and so i'm curious in what other ways would you say that your life or your husband's life have changed um, um with this so so you, you you know you mentioned this constant reminder this heart machine um mm -hmm. what about your kids or your relationship with your husband or his perspective on life i'm, I'm just curious here the the big picture of how how you've sort of adapted to this new reality yeah at first i think it was um a lot of just gratitude that he was there um for both of us you know he says that he would wake up and just be like all right I get to live another day you know just be really excited about that um that kind of wears off over time um and now it's more um i guess the warm fuzzy feeling part of it is you do sort of live your life a little more intentionally you know where we're trying to be very deliberate about making family memories and, and doing things together as a family that's just beyond the, the regular mundane tasks of everyday life. Um, you know, and he's concerned that maybe he won't, you know, live as long as we thought he might. And so he wants to make sure that, you know, for the time that he does have that, that he gives our kids plenty of, you know, memories of him. Um, so that's a, you know, another kind of lifelong reminder. I am absolutely terrified about whether I need to worry about this for my kids. I feel a little bit better about him because he does have the ICD. So if he had another cardiac arrest, that would take care of that. But of course, then there's also the potential for him to develop cardiomyopathy down the line. Um, we just don't know yet if that's going to happen um, based on his genetic results. So um, but the kids, you know, they don't have even the ICD. And so I really worry about, you know, what if they are by themselves somewhere sometime and, and that happens. And um, so I, I purchased an AED for our home, just shelled out the money uh, because, you know, with his relatives visiting us and then our kids, it just felt like I would rather just know that I have this in case I need it. And hopefully I never do. Sure, it's really sure. scary. And with genetic testing, we learned that because it's an adult onset issue that he had, um, 
we cannot decide for the kids to have them tested. We have to wait until they are of age and can decide for themselves. So I completely understand that from their side, but then from the parent side, that means we have to live for the next 10, 15 years, whatever it is, just completely in the dark, um, even if they do ultimately end up deciding to do the thing. Yeah, that's a whole that's a whole other layer of this onion of, of kids and, and managing. I can only as a, as another parent, I can only imagine um, what, what that's like. I'm curious, what what's your kids' perspective? Now they're young, but mm -hmm. older one probably has. A, they always are more perceiving of what's going mm -hmm. on. When we give them credit. What's their take on all this? Have you talked to them? Like, how has that whole thing gone? Oh, that's been a, a developed me, a developing process. Um, the night that he, you know, was taken to the, I guess the morning that he was taken to the hospital, um, you know, seven o'clock rolled around before very long at all. And I had to tell them something about why their dad wasn't here. So um, that was probably one of the hardest things I have ever done is to walk into their room and put on a normal face and a normal voice and just try to tell them, you know, um, hey, just so you know, daddy wasn't feeling very well. He got sick and he needed, you know, some help from the hospital. So he went to the hospital and, you know, they had seen the ambulance outside. So they knew something was happening. Um, I said, we didn't have what we needed here to help him. So they came and got him and took him to the hospital. And, um, you know, I just kind of had to leave it open-ended because at that point, I didn't even know if he was going to survive. I didn't know if he was going to be himself still. Um, so I just hoped that they didn't ask any of those questions. <laughs> and thankfully, you know, they had some questions, but it was all relatively, you know, in the immediate term. And then it was like, I'm hungry. Can we have breakfast? So thankfully that was the end of that. Wow. Um, but then, you know, over time, as we learn more information, we gave them more information too. Um, because yeah, they're, they're around and they see that the adults around them are acting very strange and are seemingly upset, even if they're pretending not to be. And, you know, um, they, they, pick pick up up, they pick up on everything. They, they, they do. Really yeah. Do. So we did try to give them as much information as we could without, um, scaring them. I didn't want to give them too much information before I knew which way is this going to go, you know, cause I didn't want them to think he was going to die if he wasn't, but I didn't want to give them false hope that he was going to survive if he wasn't. So I just kind of tried to bide my time until we we had some better answers for them there. Um, and then I think, you know, the older one, she's nine now, and she hears us talking about it a lot. And she sees the advocacy work that we are doing around it. And, you know, I think it's starting to sink into her a little bit more that like, oh, he was almost dead. Like she said the other day, we're really lucky we still have daddy. And I'm like, yes, we are. So I think that she's, you know, I think that will be an ongoing process for them that the more that they understand about it, they'll continue to process it. Well, who knows? Maybe they'll become future emergency physicians. They just might. Yeah. Scientists, you know, they one can... of them doesn't like blood. So I don't know. That one's kind uh, of like but the other one. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, we'll see. We'll see. No, you know, maybe um, to, to sort of close on an optimistic or future-oriented topic, you know, um, many survivors uh, talk to me about their desire to put their survival to good use and, you yeah. know, energy to something. And you mentioned advocacy. I know you recently um, put together a presentation for a group through the American Medical Association. Tell me a bit about that and what you're doing currently. Yeah, so that was for the AMA Alliance, which is a group of physician spouses. Um, so as 
the spouses of doctors, I think it's really easy for us to think that the doctor in the family will be able to handle things if they come up. Um, but, you know, we all know that they're not always home. They're often not home unless you marry an ophthalmologist like I did. Uh, but then sometimes they may end up being the patient themselves. Um, so it's, it's good to know, you know, some basic skills for, for providing medical support to your family if you have to. Um, so I spoke with them, just shared our story, and then, you know, really try to spread the message of learning CPR, knowing how to do CPR, knowing when to do CPR. Um, and then with that group in particular, you know, asking them to join me in advocacy efforts for, you know, increasing awareness for CPR um, and for cardiac arrest care um, and for survivors, not just the patient. Um, so I've reached out, I've been um, talking with Katie Dainty. Um, and I'm participating in a research study also um, with some of her colleagues um, for people who have lived experience of cardiac arrest care and um, really trying to spread the message. I love her terminology of the forgotten patient and co-survivors because that really does ring true to what this experience feels like, that there is more than just the patient who this happens to. They may need the physical care. Um, or at least the bulk of the physical care, but um, there are other people very tightly connected to them that should be considered almost an extension of the patient. And we should be you know, considering those people's needs as well as part of the standard workflow. Well, Kristen, thank you so much. Um, this has been a delightful conversation and I know our listeners will be thrilled uh, to hear your story. Or, and uh, you know, we, we look forward to more conversations. So, so thank you so much and, and thank your husband and your kids for, uh, you, you know, allowing us to share this time with you tonight. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. We're always happy, happy to share and advocate for all of this. It's really obviously near and dear to our hearts, no pun intended, but very important issue, I think so. Terrific. Yep. Thank you, listeners. With that, um, this ends our 23rd podcast in the TTM Academy series. Um, stay with us for future podcasts. Uh, a coming up very important topic will be the results of the TTM2 trial. This is a trial out of Europe looking at uh, a randomized control trial of 33 degrees Celsius versus a, uh, a little complicated, but 37.5 um, in a, in a non-controlled fashion. I'm, I'm sort of butchering that because it's a little more complicated, but basically it's a comparative effectiveness trial that many of you have heard of. TTM2, we'll be uh, talking about that in our next podcast. Um, and, and with this, I'll close. Um, you're welcome to check us out at penttm.com or check us our podcast series on either iTunes or Podbean. And uh, with that, we'll close. Kristen, have a very good evening and thank you once again. Thank you. We will see you again next time, uh, signing out from the TTM Academy.